0: In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a very serious pastoral issue. There were some people, whether teachers or congregants, we don't know, who were in the church at Corinth, who for whatever reason began to question the truth about the resurrection. And so in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul takes up his pen And with a pastoral heart, he goes to work for the sake of those who believe in Jesus Christ. It's his purpose in this chapter to confront them, those who were spreading error, and to correct them, those who were being led astray by this error on this particular issue. Now, if you look at the larger context, you'll notice that the controversy is not so much originally about Jesus. The controversy is about resurrection in general. If you look down to the end of verse 12, you can see that. The Apostle Paul says, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it's pretty clear that this is a general concern, but you'll also notice that the way Paul addresses their question is by bringing them back to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. If you take these, this verse altogether, he says, if Christ is risen, then there's no way that anyone can say that the dead do not rise. In fact, if you look down to verse 20, you can see that his argument is a lot stronger than just that. There he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, it's not just that the resurrection of Jesus makes the resurrection of his people a mere possibility. According to the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of Jesus Christ absolutely guarantees the resurrection of those who believe in him. Jesus is the first fruits, and we, congregation, Are the rest of the harvest. That's the imagery here. There's an absolute connection that you cannot break apart. Now, in order for Paul to eventually get to this point and to do his pastoral work to prove the resurrection of God's people, he first of all goes back and he begins with the resurrection of Christ. In this way, he wants to reinforce the one foundation upon which the faith and the hope of the Christian life must stand. There's one foundation upon which our hope of a future bodily resurrection must stand, and it is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now in verses 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthians and to those of us who are here today two things to consider. In verses 1 through 4, there's the primacy or the preeminence of the resurrection of Christ. And in verses 5 through 11, there's the proof or the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. So you have the primacy and you have the proof. So first of all, I want you to notice the primacy of the resurrection of Christ. According to the apostle Paul, faith, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for our salvation. In verse 1, we see that this is an essential, a substantial aspect of the gospel message. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Not one kind of a gospel or another, as if there were another, but he says, I declare unto you the one and only gospel gospel. And here, if you pay attention, the apostle Paul is not using the word gospel in its broad sense. He's using it in the narrow sense. Uh, This is what we sometimes call the gospel proper. So notice, when everything else is stripped away, there are three things that are essential. First, that Christ died for our sins. Second, that he was buried in the tomb. And third, that he rose again on the third day. So here we can see that when it comes down to the very essence of the gospel message, it's about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. If you eliminate any one of these aspects, you do not have the gospel of salvation. Paul says we have to get this message right This is the only message in all of the world that can save those who believe it. Now, as you think about that and you realize that your eternal destiny hangs upon whether or not you embrace this tenet of the Christian faith, it does raise a concern in some people's minds. Are we being too dogmatic? Are we inventing criteria for a person's salvation that is foreign to the Scriptures? The answer is no. We wouldn't dare add to the Word of God. But this is what the Apostle Paul is teaching. This is what Paul taught consistently in the rest of his letters to the churches. One example would be in his letter to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And then again in chapter 10, verse 9, he makes it clear that the gospel is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here, you can see the primacy that I'm talking about. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus an essential aspect of the gospel message, but Paul says that it's only by believing this message that anyone can ever be saved. So now going back to our text, notice how he emphasizes that in verses 1 and 2 when you read it together. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also received, and in which you stand, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, there's another way for us to see this primacy we already saw that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the object of saving faith. But now I want you to see that it's also the subject of biblical prophecy. It's not just the focal point of your salvation. It has been the focal point of the word of God down through the ages. Now, Paul doesn't want you just to believe in the resurrection because he told you that Jesus rose from the dead. When we get to our second point, we will see that apostolic testimony is vitally important to the whole narrative of the gospel. But before he even gets there, he wants you to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that which has been taught in the word of God. He wants you to search the scriptures and he wants you to search the scriptures carefully, not superficially. He wants you to come to the text of scripture Like the Bereans, who, when Paul showed up and said this was true about Jesus, they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, notice in verses 3 through 4, he says this For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. One of the things that we should always keep at the forefront of our minds is that the people of God have always had the essential aspects of the gospel given to them. The gospel, and this is very, very important, but the gospel did not originate in the first century. Instead, it was given to the people of God from the very beginning. And so as you go back and you search the word of God, what you find is that all the elements of the gospel are already there. And that the people of God already believed them. They understood these things, at least in the measure that was sufficient for their time. Now, if we wanted to, we could spend the rest of the afternoon looking at different passages of scripture where the death and resurrection of Jesus are contained. We could look at passages where it's contained in types and shadows, as it is in the sacrifice of Isaac. You remember Isaac himself is a type of Christ. And even though Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, he knew that if he did that, God would raise him from the dead. So right there, types and shadows are preaching to us and historically preaching to Abraham, the gospel of the resurrection. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, we see that this is the precise thing in view. There it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. But then it says, and from which also he did receive him as in a figure. I find it interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus makes the point that Abraham had an understanding of the gospel that, again, was sufficient for his time. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus says to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. If you cross-reference that particular statement with Psalm 2, and verse 7, and you cross-reference that with Acts chapter 13 and verse 33, you can see that the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day that he's talking about here, is when he, as the only begotten Son of God, was raised from the dead. Let me give to you the interpretation of the Apostle Paul. He says, And we declare unto you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that Jesus was raised from the dead. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, end quote. Now, another passage that we could look at is Psalm 16. That's a passage that the Apostle Peter quotes as an Old Testament promise of the resurrection of Jesus. And there, it's very interesting, Peter doesn't just announce it or declare it. He actually defends it. He actually develops it. He expounds upon it. And so rather than me going to Psalm 16, I'm just going to let Peter do it for you. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32 it's a it's a decent section listen to what peter says he says men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of god you have taken by lawless hands "...have crucified and have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it." And then here's where he quotes from Psalm 16. He says, "...for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken." Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad, and moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then, as if it's not already clear enough, Peter goes on to say, men and brethren, let me freely speak to you about the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us even to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up and of which we are all witnesses, end quote. Now, as I mentioned before, there's a lot more Old Testament material that we could cover. Uh, But in the interest of time, I want to look at just a few more verses just to give you a little more to work with. And this one's interesting, some more typology. In the book of Jonah, there's a typological reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In terms of the context, you have to know that God had given the gospel to his people, Israel. And yet, instead of Israel taking that gospel and proclaiming it to the nations of the Gentiles, what did she do? Well, she decided to take it. And to keep it all to herself. And of course, God didn't like that. So Israel got herself into trouble. Now, when you get to the book of Jonah, what you have to know is that Jonah is a type of Israel. Okay, remember that. Jonah is a type of Israel. Uh, You remember that when God sent him to the Ninevites, he refused to go. He didn't want to share the gospel. He didn't want to see the Ninevites forgiven of their sins. And so he ran away and he came under the fatherly displeasure of the Lord himself. And of course, you know the story. God caught up with Jonah. God punished Jonah. He chastened him. And he did that by putting him in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights And then when the time came, Jonah was spat up onto the shores of Nineveh to be the very means of the salvation of the people that he originally rejected. So Jonah gets up and he begins to do what Israel should have done the entire time, but failed to do. He preached the gospel to the nations and all of Nineveh repented in dust and ashes and they came and received forgiveness from the Lord. Now, in order to understand the typology that's at work here, you have to know that Jesus Christ is the true Israelite. Just like Jesus is the second Adam, so Jesus is also the second Israel. His mission was to succeed where Israel failed. And what that means is that he not only obeyed where Jonah disobeyed, Jesus was a faithful preacher of the gospel of God's grace. But he also, because he's the only sacrifice for our sins, had to reconcile the people by his own death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And to this, Jonah's experience only pointed. And so in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and following, the Bible says, "Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation it is that seeks after a sign. Therefore, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up against this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now, one of the things that you should notice here is a reference to the time, the duration of Jesus's burial Paul says that Jesus was raised specifically on the third day according to the scriptures. So you can see that by Jesus quoting Jonah 1.17, he shows that that three days of his burial was prophesied in the word of God. But we also see the same thing in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2, where again, keep this dynamic in mind the people of Israel typify the Lord Jesus Christ. Their coming political resurrection was a picture of his resurrection. And so this is what they say. Hosea 6 verse 2, come and let us return unto the Lord for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Now, again, the thing you have to see here is that the life and ministry of Jesus Christ are the fulfillment of so much that took place in redemptive history. Not only is he the new Adam, but he's also the new Israel. Not only is he the new Israel, but he is also the new temple in and through whom we all worship God. And this is testified in John chapter 2. When Jesus came to cleanse the temple, the Sadducees, who were the keepers of the temple, protested. They said, what sign do you show us since you are doing these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And of course they were confused. They said, This temple has been 46 years in the building, and will you raise it up in only three days? But then notice, John is very clear in verses 21 and 22. He says, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus said. So here, the three days, and then the resurrection was prophesied in the Scriptures, but you see it just in part. Types, shadows, prophecies. This is what we call the mystery of godliness. All of this was that message of the Gospel that was being presented in greater and increasing light to the people of God down through the ages. We could go on and on with this. But so far we've been looking at our first point only. The primacy of the resurrection. So far we've seen that primacy in at least two ways. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the object of saving faith, but it's also the subject of biblical prophecy. But now in the time that we have left, I want us to move to the second point, and that is the proof of the resurrection. And you can see that in verses 5 through 11. And on this point, I want to be a lot briefer. I want us to use this section to set us up for the next few sermons that I'm going to preach in this series as we go through 1 Corinthians 15. This series as a whole is called the resurrection of the body. Now, remember, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation, but then flowing out from that is the future resurrection of his people. So here I'm going to set us up for that consideration by looking at the nature of the resurrection of Jesus from this text. Now, to do that, I'm not going to focus on all the different witnesses that Paul mentions in these verses, I don't want to look at the distinctions and details of the various groups that he ushers in and puts on the witness stand. Instead, I want to look at the one thing that all of these different groups had in common, and that is that all of these people, whether Peter, James, Paul, the rest of the apostles at one point, more than 500 people who were gathered together at the same time, all of these people were witnesses to the risen Christ. And the key thing that we need to see here is that they were not witnesses in the general sense. They weren't witnesses in the sense that they were willing to testify about what they believed. The key here is that they were eyewitnesses because each and every single one of them saw the risen Christ. That's the key to this text. And One of the rules of hermeneutics, hermeneutics just means methods and principles of the interpretation of any text. But one of the rules of hermeneutics that you you have to be careful of is called repeated mention, repeated mention. So as you read through a passage, if you see any particular event, person, or even term repeated several times, you know you need to focus on that term. The Holy Spirit is trying to bring something to your attention, a point of emphasis that you don't gloss over, okay? And here, what we see, as you read through this passage, is that there's one word that is repeated over and over again, either explicitly or implicitly in this text, and that is the word seen. It's the word seen. Paul says that after Jesus was risen from the dead, he was seen by Cephas and was seen by the twelve. He was seen by James and he was seen by all of the apostles. He was seen by Paul and he was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses at one time. Notice that pattern. What does that tell us about the nature of the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the reason this language is so important is that it shows us something about the resurrection of Christ. It's critical because it provides us with a proper foundation for the entire chapter. If you miss this, if you just kind of go over it and then you get into the rest of the chapter, you don't have anything solid to hang on to. You don't have a foundation for the whole discussion, for the whole debate. Now, the reason that you and I can know that we do have a future bodily resurrection from the dead is that Jesus Christ, remember, is the first fruits of the rest of the harvest. Our resurrection is patterned after his resurrection and his resurrection was a bodily resurrection. That's why it is so important that we pay very careful attention to the details of the passage. Now, most of us already know that in the early church, there were a lot of heretical groups. There was a lot of heretical teaching about the person of Jesus Christ. Some denied his deity. Others denied his humanity. And then there were those who said that Jesus Christ was truly man and truly God, but that in the resurrection, he somehow left his body in the grave. They, they literally taught this. And if you think about the context there, you understand where they were coming from with the background of Greek and pagan philosophy. They had an aversion to anything that is associated with the physical and material world. They were Greek, they were pagan in their thinking, and that led them to many serious theological errors. The Bible presents things very, very clear and very, very differently than what we saw With these people. When God made man, he made man from the dust of the ground. And after making man from the dust of the ground, he breathed into him the breath of life. And after doing that, God looked and God saw that what he had created was very good. Not to be despised, not to be disregarded, God looked upon the works of his hands and he was well pleased. He's the one who decided to create us from the dust of the ground to be physical and bodily and material. It wasn't our choice. This is the biblical record. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God was happy with the work of his hands and nowhere do we see the Bible ever indicate that the material aspects of the creation were looked upon in a different way. And this is why when Adam and Eve sinned and the whole of mankind was ruined by sin and corruption, God had a plan of redemption. And just to be clear, redemption is not replacement. Redemption is not annihilating everything and then starting over with some different program. To redeem the world means to rescue his people and to restore them along with everything else in the created order to its original intended purpose. To say that only our souls are redeemed And that only our souls will be raised again is to make the incarnation of Jesus Christ an unnecessary feature of our salvation. In the early church, there was a man by the name of Apollinaris. He was responsible for what we call the Apollinarian heresy. And basically, he taught that the divine Logos, the second person of the Trinity, took a body, but he didn't take a human soul. That's what he taught. According to him, the Logos did not assume a full and complete human nature, but was instead reduced to be God in a body, God in a body. And so the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ was the Logos and all he had was a human body and no human soul. So what was the problem with that heresy in the early church? I think it's obvious If Jesus only assumed a body and not a soul, then all we can hope for is the redemption of our bodies, which is absolutely ridiculous. Now, this heresy was condemned and refuted in AD 451 with the definition of Chalcedon, but I want you to consider what Gregory of Nazianzus said in this connection. He made the point, and rightly so, that if Jesus was only partly man who only saved a part of man, then we are not saved at all. And here is his famous saying. He said, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed, that is redeemed. Now, on the other side of this, I bring that to your attention because of the contrast. On the other side of this, we have to maintain that Jesus not only assumed a full and complete human nature, but that he redeemed the entire thing. This means that if you and I are ever to be redeemed in full, we have to have a Savior who took upon himself both body and soul, and with that body and with that soul, he overcame the power of sin, death, and the grave. And the good news, congregation, is that this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. Let me give you three things to consider about this particular point. And remember our first point, the primacy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that this is the gospel, and this is the message we believe so that we might be saved. This is not a secondary issue. Now listen carefully to this point so we can properly understand the resurrection of Jesus and then later understand the resurrection of his people. First of all, Jesus predicted explicitly the resurrection of his body. When he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up, John explicitly says he was speaking about the temple of his body. Number two. The facts of history prove the resurrection of his body. If Jesus didn't rise bodily from the dead, that entire reading that we did as a congregation is pointless. Who cares about that stone? Who cares about an empty tomb? The tomb didn't need to be empty if the resurrection of Jesus Christ was only spiritual. What is the whole point of the narrative There's also no reason for the fabrication of the soldiers that the disciples somehow came in the middle of the night and stole away the Lord's body. Who cares about his body? If the expectation of the word of God, of all the biblical prophecies of Jesus and the apostles was only for a spiritual resurrection, then all of this is meaningless. Now, never mind the fact that when Thomas heard that Jesus rose from the dead, he said that he wouldn't believe unless he could see him with his eyes and touch him with his hands. That's not even the most important part of that account. The most important part of that account is that when Jesus showed up in his own body, he said to Thomas, put your finger into the wounds of my hands and put your hand into the wound of my side. So the very fact that Jesus showed up in his own body with the very scars from the crucifixion, tells us that this was a visible, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. And I might add, if it wasn't that, then Jesus was deceiving Thomas. Thomas says, I'll believe that Jesus rose from the dead if I can see his body and touch it with my hands. So Jesus comes, shows him his body, he touches it with his hands, and then he says, now you believe. Blessed are all those who have not seen me and yet still believe. And that's us. But all of that is meaningless if there was no bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number three, the wording of our text proves the resurrection of his body. Notice that when Paul recounts the details, he mentions three steps in the process. There was a death, there was a burial, and then there was a resurrection. There was a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Now in James chapter 2, James gives us some insight here that we can work with. He said that the body is the thing that dies, not the soul, not the spirit, In verse 26, he says very plainly, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. When you look at what Paul says, you can see exactly what it was that was dead. You see exactly what it was that was buried. Therefore, you see exactly what it was that was raised again from the dead. It wasn't the spirit It wasn't the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ because that never died. But instead, it's very clear that it was the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we conclude our message for today, because we have to conclude it. We could go on and on here, right? I want to send us all the way today with just a word of encouragement. There is a time for us to defend the truth of the gospel. I'm doing that right now for your sakes. There's a time for that. But there's also a time for us to sit back and just celebrate that truth. Just to think about the comfort, the encouragement, the guarantee that it gives us because we are united to Jesus Christ in body and in soul. So as we go away today and we think about everything that we've heard and seen in the word of God, my encouragement to you is that you celebrate this day, this great event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that he has accomplished our redemption. And the fact that he was raised up in the fullness of human nature means that our redemption includes our bodies as well as our souls. And here, what that means is that you and I are not just united to Jesus by the faith of our minds. It's not some invisible, intangible reality, but as Paul says, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Our union with Jesus Christ is a union of body and soul. That's the whole reason for the incarnation so that He could be one with us. And the salvation that He earns as the head, we can know, we will experience as the body. He's the first fruits; we're the rest of the harvest. You want to know what salvation and redemption of mankind looks like? You look to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you know what is in store for you. And so closing now, Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. What he says here is very important. Just notice everything he says and put it all together. He says, now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Jesus Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them into members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Then he says... Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is also the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen.